Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Kurt. This is our review of Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, starring Peter Sellers, Peter Sellers, Peter Sellers, George <laughs> Scott, George C. Scott, Slim Pickens, Sterling Hayden, and James Earl Jones, yes, released in 1964 on a budget of $1.8 million, grossed $9.4 million in its North American box office run. Now, I'll go ahead and admit, Kurt, I knew of Dr. Strangelove, the film, hmm. referenced in so many different things, some of which I didn't realize until watching it, but I had never watched it before this review. I think I knew enough about it that I always felt like I don't have to watch that movie. I know what it's about. You know, so Cold War satire is hmm. an interesting subject matter for me because as a kid who, you know, I was born in the 70s, but I grew up in the 80s. So like the end of the sure. Cold War is my childhood, you know, war games, Red Dawn, all that stuff. <laughs> and so to see a movie that was on the front end of it, or I guess, I, yeah, I, we still say about 15 years after the Cold War started, we're still on the front end of it here, uh, was an interesting exercise for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, about this, this, this movie, uh, you know, it goes through cycles. When, I, when it came out, it was kind of like, like in the 60s, they said it was, it was like really ahead of its time. And it was really like a, a dangerous movie. Some people said they like some uh, – there was rumors that the government want, didn't want it shown because it was – maybe it was a little too accurate showing how frightening uh, uh, the people who control you know, the most powerful weapons in the world, how incompetent they might be or how in the wrong hands how this kind of stuff could happen. And uh, over the years, you know, the movie became like you – know, it was like a satire. It's like oh, it's, you know, it's like a, just a, a great comedy. But what's interesting is that you know, I posted about it the other day just saying yeah, I'm watching Dr. Strangelove and someone posted uh, – making, making a comment. This movie was a lot funnier back when it uh, wasn't realistic because <laughs> right now right, right now, it's like, God, I, I, I have no problem believing the scenes in the war room in yes. Dr. Strangelove have occurred in the last few weeks. I mean literally there was a news story where the headline was U.S. claims to be running out of options with North Korea. It's like that only means a handful of things. Yeah, it does. And and you're right. I do think – and that was one reason I really wanted this to squeeze and get this one in. Well, actually, there's two reasons. I couldn't leave the Kubrick retrospective on Lolita after <laughs> as bad a time as I had with that. And I wanted us to get one more in before the end of the year. And I thought, you know what? This one's actually kind of topical, sadly enough. I mean it yeah. really is. And I, I thought, you know, this is a good one to end on because – while it is so top, well, it is kind of funny, and I mean, it is all played for laughs in this movie. It's a comedy. It's also something that is very timely, and the good chunk of it is really Peter Sellers playing the U.S. president, which is kind of an Adlai Stevenson rip, is what I understand, <laughs> and George C. Scott playing like the most jingoistic like army general air force general you can think of like the mm -hmm. guy and i didn't realize the thing i knew this this name from his name's general turgidson and i thought <laughs> back to school sam kennison's character is <laughs> professor turgidson i had never put that together and i'd rewatched back to school recently and i was like i totally get it now 
Oh yeah, this movie is it, it's been it's definitely a cult favorite amongst filmmakers. Like I've seen I think I've seen several band names uh where they've you know they've taken something from the movie uh uh make like the term mega death. I mean I don't know if that term was ever used before this movie, but there's a yeah, I think but, there's a book that says like what 10,000 mega deaths or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's deaths in or uh casualties in mega deaths or whatever. That's right. So, <laughs> which is I mean is, it sounds like such a uh, an awful term, but it also is kind of like army specific scientific. Like it's what you would think the military would classify things as. It says, well, it's not just deaths, it's mega deaths, which are, you know, millions or whatever. So, which is yeah. what they get into. Yeah. No, I mean, nowadays with, with the tension between North America or with the United States rather and, and Korea, and then also, eh, you know, our current president, not exactly the most beloved leader in the world right now. Most hmm. people think he's kind of crazy, a little bit of a loose cannon. I mean, you can see like why this film is topical nowadays to people but think about it in the 1960s and particularly this movie was made in 1963 we're in the jfk america and it actually got delayed in release because of his assassination like they just right. thought i mean the studio was like we can't you just can't put this out matter of fact, there's a line and you can see slim pickens mouth talking oh, about yeah. that sounds like a good night in dallas they redubbed it to vegas because they're like we can't talk about dallas yeah. you know what i mean and i thought man what a different time because nowadays like we like to think stuff would get shelved because no, it would probably get rushed into production and out nowadays just to make the statement. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, it was a, like a, the politics have changed. Like uh, that, that was a time, you know, like uh right smack after McCarthyism where uh, I was just watching a video of like, uh, you know, uh, Sterling Hayden himself. He absolutely regrets it, but he was, you know, he, he actually named names to the, you know, the, the American, what was it? The, the HUAC. And he, he said that, you know, after he did that, he got calls from everyone in Hollywood, like congratulating him, saying you're a great person. And he's, he totally looks back at that as going, God, what, a, what an embarrassment. Uh, and he's totally ashamed. Yeah. Again, it's just a, such a different time for Hollywood. Oh, it to totally was. I mean, you're talking about McCarthyism and all of that stuff. Yeah, this is a completely a take on every bit of that. And uh, I and I, you know, look, Kubrick is not one to shy away from controversial topic but i think this is the first time he took something that he certainly had a lot of thoughts about but he placed it off as comedy and i also realized something else i i have a different appreciation for the spielberg bomb 1941 now having watched this movie because i think what spielberg wanted to do was a political satire and he just picked a really bad way to do it but yeah. i feel like dr strangelove influences that a lot more than maybe people realize Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, in, in ways uh, big and small, the, the one I, keep, I think of right away is he literally gets slim pickings uh, to essentially almost like he is is always redoing the scene where he's going over the the uh, the contents of the survival guide. I think he's going through. The, I can't remember. He's going through some list of things. But, you know, Spielberg said we got to get slim pickings in the movie and he has to read some kind of a list like he did in Strangelove. I'm surprised that like Zucker and Abrams didn't do that with the airplane movies. You know, of all the things yeah. they spoofed, and there's certainly some strange love in that, they didn't get him to do a spot 
of reading some random list of like you know containers in the bathroom of an airplane or something like that. Uh, <laughs> I don't. Maybe he wasn't around then. I don't know. But I, I'm just. I just you know thought of all of those things again. I knew Strange Love had been referenced in so many things that I felt like I had seen it before I ever saw it. And so uh, was interesting to come to it this time around and think about okay, you know, I haven't seen this movie, so what is it going to be? And I mean, I just watched it straight, just cold, just went in and said. I'm just going to experience this movie for what it is. And then I went and read a lot of stuff about it afterward. But I have a hmm. feeling a lot of our audience maybe hasn't seen this or hasn't seen it in a while and, or maybe doesn't want to think about it because it is so topical yeah. right now. So, Kurt, why don't you give people the plot summary? Tell them what the Stanley Kubrick's Strange Love is all about. For sure. So when paranoid General da- Jack D. Ripper sets the wheels in motion for a squadron of B-52 bombers to deliver an atomic strike on Soviet Russia, the U.S. president and his group of advisors, along with British Royal Air Force Captain Mandrake, race against the clock to recall the squadron and stop the attack. President Merkin Muffley, General Buck Turgeson, and Dr. Strangelove, President Merkin Muffley, General Buck Turgeson, and Dr. Strangelove debate on what to do on and on while the army invades the base and takes it over, but not before General Ripper kills himself before issuing the recall code. Mandrake eventually figures out the code, and all but one bomber is recalled. This plane, piloted by Major T.J. Kong, continues on its mission, having sustained critical damage from an anti-aircraft missile and cannot be radioed. Major Kong personally sees to it that his one bomb does release personally writing it to its target. As nuclear explosions from retaliatory strikes go off across the world, Strangelove lays out his plan for mankind's survival to the advisors and the president as the credits roll. So my first question for you, Kurt, and that's a good summary of it, is why is this movie called Dr. Strangelove? Why is it not called How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb? I'm a... I'm not exactly sure. I think the original title was Red Alert. And when you hear that, you might think... Yeah, which is that, the book it's based off of, we should say. So, yeah. Exactly. That, that, that's right. Um, and, yeah, I think they probably change it from Red Alert because you hear Red Alert. That th- sounds a little bit too much like a thriller. Uh, again, I don't know what the... I don't know if the book was... I have, if I have a hard time believing the book was meant... Was, you know, as uh, comical. Oh, it's not. Uh, it's not at all. The book actually is very similar to Failsafe. If you've ever right. seen that, it was, I've seen a couple, you know, the couple of versions of that that are out there, and it's much more serious. The idea is the same, but then you've got Kubrick and some of his other folks in here trying to write it for, and really Sellers, who's doing a ton of improv, trying to hmm. write comedy into this. Yeah, yeah for sure, and I think. Uh, I think they did, they went with that title, the title Doctor Strangelove. Uh, well, just because it is, I mean, it's a, it's a strange title. It, do, it doesn't give you any clue as to what this movie is about. And that, that that subtitle, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, I've never exactly understood it because it's like it's 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 a bizarre title. Uh, having I love that it is that long, and uh, I, I'm not sure who who came up with that, but I do love that title. I think that's a Kubrick thing. I think that's what what he is saying is that. This is how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb, which I believe is him saying, look, there's idiots in charge of this on every side and we're all screwed. So it doesn't really <laughs> matter. I mean, that's really what I think he's getting into here. If you just want to be putting a fine point on it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, really, it's hard to, to not think about this with all of the different pieces. And let's talk about the the 
Peter Sellers parts here because I mentioned him three times in the intro. That wasn't me screwing it up. He plays yeah. three different parts. He's supposed to play four. He was supposed to play Kong, but he ended up like hurting his ankle and couldn't do it for some reason. So they, <laughs> they couldn't fit in the tight cockpit little thing they had. So they got some pickings instead. But this whole film got financed because Lolita was a hit and because the studio said, well, you know, Sellers kind of plays multiple people there. He's done it before. We, we want Peter Sellers just to play a bunch of people. So you can have the money to do it if you get Peter Sellers to sign on and play, you know, four parts. And Sellers was down for it. And I got to thinking, I was like, man, the, you know, this is a different time in Hollywood when you would have an actor and you would want them to just do multiple things at once. And yeah. I mean, he's playing off of himself in some reason. In some of these scenes, he's just talking to himself. It's like Eddie Murphy or something. Exactly. It's like uh, it's been done a few times. Like I know Alec Guinness. He made a movie called. What's it called? Arsenic and Old Lace, where he plays like an entire family. So it's, right. it has been right. it has been done before, but 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 and I haven't, I haven't seen that. But what Sellers did here, it is just it's it, it's something to see. Like he was nominated for the Academy Award for uh, for best leading actor, and it's interesting. He's kind of playing three supporting players, and yet he was up for and yes, he, and yet he has the most screen time. And I said this on the Lolita Pod, and I kind of stand by it, which is I think Peter Sellers was sort of the best at what he did when. When he wanted to turn on the funny, he was he, he was just unreal. And uh, and I got to say, whenever I'm in the middle of this movie, if Sellers is doing such an amazing job. I, sometimes it's easy for me to forget that Sellers is playing all three, just because they are. It's not just that he's playing three of the same kind of guy. They're so such wildly different characters. Each of them hilarious uh, in their own way. Like the president, you know, first he comes off as very presidential, but over the over the course of the movie, like while he's on the phone with the Russian uh, premier Kesov, he, he over the course of the movie he turns into this pathetic wimp who sounds like a person with no actual authority or power. Yeah, uh, he's just a <laughs> just a loser. Uh, you know, as Captain Mandrake starts off as this you know very proper British uh, uh, officer, and over the course of the movie he gets more and more panicked having to deal with such levels of insanity and stupidity with the, the people in the in the American military and uh, and as Dr. Strangelove that's that's where I almost think like that's Sellers going I wouldn't say going crazy but that was he's definitely given the most free reign it has to be with that like oh, that's where he, Sellers he because yeah. he turns it it's not like it's 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 not even a real person it's it's pure just like a, a sketch. It's just so bizarre. You know, the one leather glove, the wheelchair. <laughs> and the alien hand that just keeps doing like it wants to hell Hitler, but he's trying to like control it. And exactly. He's got and- this sort of half, <laughs> um, uh, you know, Sigmund Freud voice and half faux German. It's this whole, I mean, Strange loves his whole thing. I want to get into him though, but I want to go back to the president, man. His whole name is a riff. Muffly Merkin. Those are two <laughs> slang terms for like, you know, fake pubic regions in, exactly. in uh, you know, Hollywood. And I was like, that that's a statement about the presidency at this point. You think this person's that ineffectual. And from what I was able to read, not only is Sellers ad-libbing, but a ton of the back and forth with him and George C. Scott in the war room there, which only Stanley Kubrick would, would shoot a movie with 25 people around a table and only two of them talk. You know, and they talk yeah. across the table at each other, but both of them are like mostly ad libbing their dialogue, which, you know, a lot of people know George C. Scott from like the, you know, he was in The Exorcist 3 and he did the great version of Charles Dickens, you know, Christmas Carol and he was Patton and all this stuff. I'm going to tell you something. This guy was a, is a powerhouse actor and watching him and Sellers go toe to toe. 
was so much fun because they're both just chewing up the scenery with this dialogue. They're spitting at each other. Oh yeah. The, the two of them are good. George C. Scott is particularly, uh, underrated like casting peter sellers in a comedy that you know that makes sense but where kubrick's genius ca- uh, kicks in is where he, you know he decides he wants to go with you know actors like george c scott and, and like sterling hayden in a comedy oh, and yeah. george c and yeah and george c scott he is truly one of the best american actors just check out anything he's ever done he's he had this awesome mix of like kind of like raw like emotion of a great actor and this tough guy uh charisma he's kind of the exact same guy as lee j cobb uh, who I, you know, and you know he's the same kind of guy because after Lee J. Cobb died, Scott literally took over for him, playing his parts <laughs> in The Exorcist and in the Twelve Angry Men remake that uh, yeah. Freakin did. And and he is he, he's he, for really, I haven't seen everything he's done, but pretty much apart from this, he's a truly like serious actor. Yes. But in this movie, he shows what an underrated uh, comedic a- actor he was. He's such a goof. Uh, Oh, yeah. In this movie. I mean, he's got the secretary that he's banging on the side or whatever, and yeah. he takes the phone call. And then he, like, takes the call in the middle of the war room, like, sweetie, I told you never to call me here. Yeah, look, <laughs> you know, I'm going to be a good, but you might want to say your prayers because we're all going to friggin' die, you know? So, but I mean, yeah, I, I love this guy, though, that he's, he's everything about 1950s and early 60s American machismo. You know, that I've ever read or seen about and heard about. He's he is the atypical. Well, sir, uh, that wasn't protocol. And he found a loophole. And well, sir, you're not nearly as smart as you think you are, because this is, you know, 500 megatons. But it'll only kill this many people. And then he's also like the the Russian uh, diplomat, which he like makes up crap about this guy is spying on us only to find out that he is actually freaking spying on them. That was so, bored. Yeah, so that's, bored. that's one thing that, like, I think Kubrick is playing with is the idea that, like, stereotypes are bad, but they're not always untrue. <laughs> and, yeah. and I mean, and I kind of like that, that the subversive humor of it is that. But Turgeson, for me, I'll just go ahead and say it now. This was the thing that I loved the most in, in the hmm. film. His scenes. And I'm going to get Sterling Hayden in a minute as, as Jack T. Ripper and uh, a bit, because I think he and Sellers have fun, you know, in the Mandrake and the Ripper scenes. But Turgeson, to me, was so much fun every time he was on the screen, and particularly those long scenes where he's basically explaining to the president, we had this one rogue general who has started World War III, and there's really nothing we can do about it because of all this bureaucratic red tape we've put in place to keep something like this from happening. Well, it also keeps us from being able to you know, stop it once it's in motion. Yeah, he's 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 always like ridiculously insubordinate to to the president, which is hilarious. Like like the president is rightly saying, you know, like that this guy uh, Jack D. Ripper that you put in place is you know, the man's obviously like obviously psychotic. And 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 George C. Scott, he's like, well, I think it's unfair to judge the whole program yeah, based exactly. on a single slip up. Yeah, exactly. Or or let's not judge the man until we've had time to evaluate him. I'm like, exactly. no, he's clearly nuts, you know, to do this. No, that that's the great thing though is that, and that's what makes that back and forth so good, is you've got sellers over there trying to be so like presidential and like authoritative, but he's really just a huge wuss who has no power. And I yeah. think that's, I mean, I think what uh, Kubrick is trying to say is that we hold the president up as if he's this, you know, infallible human being, and he's just another guy. And what if somebody like this got elected? Well, this is probably what would happen. It's what we all want, right? We want this real touchy feeling, nice person or whatever, this real nice person, yeah. but he can't make a friggin' decision. 
when it matters. Like he doesn't, he never really takes the bull by the horns, and, he, and especially on the like when he's on the one way phone calls with the the <laughs> Russian premier. I was like, well, now Andre, you know, he's like, Dimitri, calm down, you know. And I, I love like he's talking to him like he's his you know buddy from college or something. Oh, for sure. It's it's exactly like the great Bob Newhart, you know, phone bit where it's just you yes. just all you hear is the one side of the conversation. And like he's talking I love the setup, like right before the conversation starts, the ambassador says he's drunk, which adds a level to it. Uh, that <laughs> uh, when he's like, How are you doing? You're fine, good. We're we're both fine. I agree. It's it's great to be fine. Well, of course I'd like to talk of course I'd just call just to talk to you, sure, but this <laughs> is kind of urgent. And I'm like, well, you know, how do you break that? You know, I was like, um, yeah. we might have accidentally launched an attack against you, but we need you to chill out. It's going to be okay. You know? <laughs> and don't retaliate, please. Pretty please. Uh, I, I did get a real kick out of all of that. And, and I'll lay a lot of that on sellers. I think you're right. His comedic timing is fantastic here. And I think he really nails like the Midwestern bland American accent. Uh, and then the three accents he's playing around with here. I mean, I think Mandrake's just him. Right. I mean, that's just the way he talks. Um, Cause I got a lot of Clouseau off of him <laughs> from time to time being a big pink Panther fan. And I thought, well, that's probably just him being himself. But, um, but they like hired this whole dialogue coach for him to try to be the, the uh, King Kong guy, which they ultimately, you know, went with just slim Pickens to do. But um, I think it's been, um, I, I don't know. I, I thought it was really funny the way they, they laid all that out. Yeah, again, it's it's it is a, a, an an amazing performance. It it might very well be the best acting job someone's uh, done in a comedy because the, each of these characters, it's not just that he's playing three different characters; he's playing three different characters with such different comedic mm-hmm. uh, intentions. Like what I love about Mandrake is you know how he starts off so prim and proper, and over the course he just gets. He he starts to crack up that great bit where he's talking to Sterling Hayden and you know uh, uh, the Ripper's going on about fluoridation and his absolutely insane reasoning for wanting to start World War Three, and 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 because he's locked in the room with this guy, his he just totally shuts down and just starts nervously laughing to himself and, and it's is I've never seen fear depicted more more, more uh, hilariously or with the way he's just refused like when he had rippers telling him come over here help me with the gun and he's he just totally freezes uh, the string's gone out in my leg jack what this this string like just <laughs> refusing to participate because yeah. he has no idea how to deal with this guy it's just hilarious and the way you know you read the behind the scenes stuff sellers said he, he was in the RAF so he just kind of mimicked his superiors and how like very you know in charge they were but also how completely ineffectual they were <laughs> like they couldn't sure. do anything and they and but in the end, I mean, he's the one that, that figures a lot of this stuff out. I mean, he figures out the the radio call that'll call the bombers back and it, and all of that stuff. So he is smart. He's the, probably the smartest person in the room. And, I mean, he has that whole back and forth with the Army guy that finally breaks in and has him at gunpoint. And he doesn't <laughs> have enough quarters to make the phone call. So he's like, shoot the damn Coke machine so I can have enough quarters to make the call. And I was like, oh, man, there's people going to listen to this show that have no idea what in the hell he's doing right there. Like they have True, no yeah. concept. Of, and I was going to say, Kurt, do you remember phone booths? I mean, at all? 
Oh, I, I do remember them, yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, though, like, I remember, like, when when I rolled around before I had a cell phone, I had a pager. And no, I wasn't a drug dealer. But I had a pager, and I would keep, like, change in my ashtray in my car just so I could return phone calls from random places around town. What did I ever do before I had a cell phone? But, I mean, this is what <laughs> we did in the world, right? And and I, it's funny to think about, the, like, we had 40 years where that was the the way of communication publicly was that. And now we've we've... You know, lapped that so fast in the last ten years. It's amazing, but uh, again, all that comedy works. But what what's the under theme here? And this is what's amazing is this idea of like mutually assured destruction. That you know, well, if if we're going to launch this attack, then here's going to be their retaliation, and then here's how we're going to survive that, so that we can take them out and have like ninety nine percent of their missiles destroyed, and that's an acceptable loss of life. Like to hear these guys talk about this stuff in the war room as just like. It was nothing is out. It's kind of scary. It really makes the film almost horrific. Oh, for sure. Because yeah, this movie was made, you know, right when the Cold War was around its hottest, like the Cuban Missile Crisis and so forth. There was an honest to God chance that World War Three might have broken out between, you know, uh, Russia and America. It was a, it was a serious time, which makes it all the more cool that right there in the middle of that serious time, Kubrick makes a comedy <laughs> about that time. And it's, I think it's also funnier knowing now that, you know, of course, Russia never did nuke America and all that ridiculous paranoia never really materialized any, into anything real. Well, until maybe maybe recently. But the characters in this movie are uh, so ridiculously paranoid about whoever the other side is. Like the classic moment when, you know, when, when Turgeson tackles the Russian ambassador, tries to plant a camera on him and the great line president says, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Turgeson... <laughs> Planting the camera, uh, probably to get him out because he's so paranoid about him learning American secrets. And, of course, the gorgeous revelation that when you find out he actually is spying on him and takes a camera of the board when nobody is looking. And so, like, the idea, this idea that, you know, these people, like, nobody trusts anyone. Nobody's communicating with everyone. And these are the guys that, like, the wrong uh, mistake and the, literally, literally, the world ends. Exactly. And that's the thing about mutually assured destruction. It's the reason none of it ever came to any head, Kurt, is hmm. that that postulation saved millions of lives. Now, it cost a lot of lives, too, and it cost a lot of money and it bankrupted an entire you know union, the Soviet Union. But the idea that, well, we could launch on them, but then they're going to launch on us and we're all going to be dead kept a lot of people kept World War Three from happening up to this <laughs> point. I mean that's and that's the thing is that I think what Kubrick is trying to say is that as absurd and as like cold as all this sounds, it's actually the best policy that we do posture we do posture at each other and we don't actually push the button. Because if we did, there's there's nothing left. You know, like there's <laughs> nowhere to go. And I, I don't know, I found that fascinating to to watch play out here. And I mean, it's only with the retrospect of history now that we know that that was a good idea. At the time, I mean, you got school children that were being drilled up through the 1980s on if there's a nuclear attack, get under your desk. I mean, <laughs> as if. You know, like yeah. that was kind of all that did was make you an easier target for the shockwave. I mean, that's that's all that did. But they didn't know what else to do. I mean, if you watch films like The Day After and things like that, I mean, there's there's tons of you know nuclear apocalyptic films, and this one was so far on the front of all of it. And it, the fact that it plays it all off as look at how incompetent all the people that are in charge of this are. Doesn't that scare you? It should. Mm -hmm. For sure. And this, this concept of the doomsday weapons, uh, uh, 
it didn't hit me till the last time that, like, I always thought of it, well, Russia has this doomsday weapon, but really this concept of the plan R, you know, what Jack mm-hmm. Ripper puts into place, that is America's doomsday weapon because it's part of this emergency plan where if America were attacked, all the planes shut their radios off and bomb Russia, and they switch their radios off so there's little to no, so there's, there's little chance of not wiping, of uh, not wiping out Russia. And I always laugh when... Uh, when Turgeson is breaking down Ripper's plan, uh, he says he you know, makes like as he's breaking down how disturbing this is, and you know many lives lost. He does say, but on the other hand, this would be a great opportunity to take Russia out while while, while the planes are flying anyway. Yeah. And that bit where he says, and actually there actually was an unofficial study of this eventuality that says if we did try this, we'd actually. Uh, We'd suffer very uh, acceptable civilian casualties, and you know, I get this. I get the sense, with, at least from Turgidson, that he's a guy where it's like he secretly wanted to do the same thing Ripper did, but well, you know, yeah. he just wasn't crazy enough. Look, he's he's a total war hawk. Like we know that, right? That's what this man has spent his entire life living up to to this point. That's why he's he's single. He's not married. He plays the girl off like, oh yeah, I'm gonna make you Mrs. Buck Turgidson. I'm like, <laughs> bull man, you're just you're James Bond in that chick. We know. <laughs> <laughs> we, we know what's up. She doesn't, but we know. It's another one, by the way, and I, I, I'm just going to keep bringing it up because it's going to be a continued theme. Kubrick cannot write women for anything. <laughs> like, he writes them off as just yeah. dumb. And I'm, I'm sorry, this poor woman in this film it just plays off so stupid and throwaway. And in the end, she is. Like, we just don't even care what happens to her. Sure, yeah. Again, yeah, that was, that was, that was always Kubrick's thing until uh... – well, yeah, I mean, the, the most well-rounded woman he, he had in a movie was the movie in this, the, his very, you know, final film, and then, then yeah. he dropped dead. <laughs> yeah, exactly, which we're a long way from, so we'll we'll get yeah. around to, uh, to Eyes Wide Shut someday. But I'm watching this, and I'm actually, but I'm seeing things, and I'm like, yeah, I've seen that performance before. Won't be the last time I see it, you know, <laughs> in the Kubrick retrospective. It's just, you know, it's, it's like Pinhead in a Hellraiser movie. It's coming at some point. So, you know, you know it's there, so whether it should be or not. So let's get into Strange Love here, though, real quick. What exactly is his affliction? Um, he's in a wheelchair. He's got the the one hand that's leather glove, like we say, that seems to evil dead and have a mind of its own. What is hmm. his deal? Well, I'm, I'm not sure where the hell they came up with that one or if that was Sellers himself. But the, again, the way Sellers plays him is just uh, so unreal. Like for that last scene. Uh, where it turns into this great sketch. Like what happens in that last scene, you couldn't put that at the start of the movie and you couldn't put that in the middle where things are straight because it would just come off as silly. But as the movie gets sillier and sillier, mm. it's, it's a, it's a, at the, when you get reached that point in the movie where nothing, nothing isn't silly. It's, it fits just fine to have strange love literally fight his own hand. And I think, I think I read that sellers, he came up with the idea that strange love, you know, he came over from Germany after World War II to work for the Americans, but somehow his hand is still a Nazi. And when he gets animated, <laughs> and when his energy's up, the hand goes into to Nazi mode. And like, I love when he, when he, when he's talking to the president, and he he lets out a Freudian slip. He accidentally calls the president Mein Führer, right. and has to backtrack just as a reflex from his days back in the Third Reich talking to world leaders. And it's 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 just hilarious how. He's talking about you know the future of humanity in this mind shaft, talking about the principles of leadership and tradition, and the hand goes into a Zeke Heil. Uh, because to the hand, that sounds like you know good old Nazi talk. 
And I also heard the theory that the Z Kyle is basically, you know, uh, an erection metaphor. Oh. The way it does, it happens whenever at these high points of excitement. I'm so glad you said that because I was going to call it out, man. I'm like, that hand is an erection. That's what that is. <laughs> I like it's look, it's right there. Especially like there's that part where he, his longest monologue is like, you need ten females to the one male, and they need to be of birthing, you know, age. He's going through the, all this <laughs> stuff, and his hand just keeps popping up. I'm like, yep, that's supposed to be a penis. You For know? sure. Like, I mean, there there is a huge bit of sexual politics in this film, and we don't have to get into all of that because it's pretty obvious <laughs> what it is. But. I do like though that like his his whole like plan for like saving a me- uh, you know the race is you got to have more women than men because you got to have breeders <laughs> like you got you and I'm like wow I'm like I thought Kubrick objectified women before but now he's like got a character basically saying they're just here to make more you know presumably men or more people for well, us to breed from it's really i mean i i know i can't i can't watch this movie from 1964 with 21st century glasses on but it's hard not to just recoil from that well, I think so. I think that Kubrick is, and I don't think Kubrick is trying to say that that's at all acceptable. I think he is totally with this whole movie. Like the, the, he depicts the, these guys in the military; they're either insane, they're they're idiots, or they're or it's a British guy. And like, uh, <laughs> and I think I think he's, he's satirizing them, saying, "Of course, like like these guys." It reminds. I was thinking of Fight Club, actually. The way that I think of that movie is like Fincher is totally. The movie is like those characters, like a parody of masculinity and what happens when guys have too much testosterone and don't know what to do with it. I find that's pretty similar with uh, with with these characters, uh, like with the way you know Buck Turkson's, you know, uh, he's a single man and in uh, uh, in the swing in sixties and, and all that, and and the way when when Strange Love he's depicting uh, this. You know, we need to pick women based on their their uh, sexual pervasity, whatever. And every one of the generals and the president are hanging on his every word, thinking this is the. They're they're all secretly thinking this is the best idea we've ever heard. We got to put <laughs> all of our funds into this. I know that's the thing is like what he is saying is so absurd, but it also makes a ton of sense. Like I'm sitting there watching this and going, you know. I, I I mean, this is a Nazi telling me this, but he's not wrong about some of his assumptions <laughs> here at this point. I mean, it's not I, it's not comfortable to say, but that's the truth. I mean, I, what he's saying for I mean, and look at that moment in time, they've just launched a nuclear bomb on a Russian city. They're waiting to be retaliated against. He's talking about you know, run everybody the mine shaft. Hmm. Yeah, it's it, it, it's it's a again, it's part of that, that that final scene of how it's such it is on one hand, it's like the only option left. On the other hand, it is so ridiculous. They go it, within five minutes. They go from we are the United States of America, the most you know powerful nation on Earth to we got to we got to find a mine shaft to bury into in order to wait for 100 years for the radiation fallout like this instant sense of like defeat. It's like, OK, we're guess So everybody's dead. Now well, let's let's find some salt mines. Yeah, exactly. Everybody's dead. Let's go hide underneath the earth because, you know, it may take 90 years for us to peek back out. But, you know, we'll we'll select a lot of good men and a, a whole lot of, you know, hide voluptuous women and we'll just have a good old time down there. It's just like a, a big orgy, mind Fuhrer. You know, <laughs> that's what he's describing. Oh, for sure. It's Again, it's like uh, I love the way uh, like Turgeson is acting as though he's hearing – the word of God. He couldn't possibly be more excited about this. The way he's excited to get back to his secretary. He's hearing this and it's like, 
it's like, wow, this is, this is, he's, he's thinking like the, this is the end of the world here. We're, like, it's going to be like a Mad Max underground. He's thinking this is going to, this is going to be awesome. That's what he's thinking. Oh yeah. Cause I mean, he's like, he's going to be able to upgrade from secretary lady because, uh, I mean, you know, look, it's, it's for the world, babe. We got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's his whole thing, right? He literally says, so that means we'd have to end all this thing about monogamy, right? In order to carry on the human species? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, no, I, I'd find that all hilarious and the way that it plays out. And, and again, I, let's say Strange Love is just such a weird character, but I feel like it's sellers really riffing on a lot of points, you know, the, the sexual politics of nuclear war, you know, mutually assured destruction. And then also the idea that we, you know, we basically kidnapped all these German scientists to come to America yeah. to you know, help us lead the space race. I'm, I'm from Alabama, not far from Huntsville where a lot of that happened, you know? For and sure. So, I mean, like I knew that history growing up. So to see you know, the, the riff on it here, or the satire of it, I, 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 it was funny. We haven't talked, about Sterling Hayden enough though we've got to talk about him because I was sure. so glad to see him come back in a Kubrick movie obviously just doing a favor for his you know his old friend here uh, and I love this guy because he is so serious Kurt I don't know if you spent much time on the web like exploring conspiracy theories and stuff there's a <laughs> real good subsection at YouTube that's dedicated to this but I have heard this guy's whole spiel like a hundred different times Oh yeah, you know, just in the last couple of years. I mean, it's it's they're putting fluoride in the water. It's how they control us, and we're not going to let them do it. And I'm like, oh gosh, what if one of those loons got into a position like power like that? Oh, exactly. He, it's I do love that you know, Kubrick. He brought him back after after the killing to to be General Ripper. Now everyone is on fire in in, in this movie. There's no bad really bad performance in the movie. But my favorite performance is Sterling Hayden. I think it's a genius comic performance it's genius in how it's so funny without actually being funny uh, necessarily like the character is a psychopath he's like he's he's willing to start world war three and potentially wipe out the entire planet in order to eliminate russia but his reasonings for this ungodly slaughter he's trying to commit are so ludicrous that he just comes off like some dumb crackpot who should be carrying a, a cardboard sign saying the end is nigh and stuff and exactly <laughs> and then the way the way hayden plays it, it it reminds me a lot of the way james mason was in lolita where the character certainly was not funny but i was i was laughing at his antics anyway the way he goes on about commies and the precious bodily fluids i mean you know he is he's just a lunatic yeah, but he, he basically talks about like you can pleasure a woman up to a point but you can't really you know uh, you can't come to climax because don't share your fluids with him and i'm like is this guy really talking about this while bullets are <laughs> whirling by his head to a british raf officer i was yeah. like wow you know, the humor of that just the scene of that is humorous not not to mention the deadpan straight delivery he gives it Oh yeah, and, and and Peter Sellers makes it so much funnier with his like he's so terrified, but he's trying to act as though he's going along with it. Yeah, yeah, that's right, Jack. You're 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 right about well, that. He's always trying to steer the conversation too. He's like, now, now, Jack, about that code. Like he's constantly <laughs> trying to get it back, but he's doing it with like no sense of urgency. But there's a little bit of urgency, but he's not like going to push him because he's being very proper and very British. <laughs> you know? So he's never going to be rude to this man. For sure, and and yeah, and 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 this guy Ripper is uh, 
first of all, I mean, like, it's just, I, 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 just overall, I love the names in this movie. The villain of the movie being named Jack D. Ripper. That's just classic. And <laughs> yeah, and he is a great villain. And that's the thing that he he, he kind of is like a represents the whole movie. And is that the story is so dark and twisted. If you just looked at what happens via the plot. You know, it works just as well as a thriller, a, a, as a comedy. It's kind of that's kind of the thing. Even if you're not laughing at the movie, it's like you're going along. There's some pretty decent action. There's some effects for a oh, old '60s movie. I, I had callbacks to Paths of Glory with that battle scene with the army invading the the base and all that stuff. I was like, this looks exactly like that trench warfare stuff, except it's done with like shaky cam now, and, exactly and handheld. And I was like, what a great evolution of of war documentary for. Kubrick and I mean we can appreciate that because we just we we watched that movie earlier this year and now seeing it here again it's like oh wow okay he really learned how to work the camera in that situation for sure that's that's the thing of that's why you know Kubrick it was so good especially like in this movie it's that combination of his you know like of his skills as a writer and working with actors but also his like his visuals like even though it was a it is a it is a comedy the visuals are unbelievable like we the, the the set design by by ken adam that actual war room which is just like so cavernous as though like it's just you don't see a roof or a ceiling it's just in in space that guy ken adam he <laughs> he basically he designed the bond movies basically his whole yeah. thing is like you need a map the size of a house like that's what he does well i'm so glad you you said that because i've been re-watching some bond movies and stuff recently and all of them have like you know the specter room has this or you know the, exactly. the constant room and i was like holy cow this is a buy and then i looked it up too and i was like oh no wonder i was like yeah you know this but this is what i thought those rooms looked like growing up i mean war <laughs> games all of that stuff i was like oh it's all from this and i'm like this is I mean, Bond was 1964. That's Dr. No. They didn't really have this in Dr. No. Well, you get around to like from Russia with Love and Goldfinger and Thunderball and then all of the Roger Moores and all that stuff. There's always one of these map rooms. There's always one of these. I mean, hell, Goldeneye, the whole movie is pretty much in one of these things. So it's, I, I was like, wow, yeah, this really influenced what we thought in popular culture was the, the, the hangout of all these places. And by the way, if you've ever actually seen, and they've now declassified some of it, none of the real places look anything like this none of them are, are is they're not as nice they're not as no spacious way. they're very boring and bland oh yeah like that's that's like there's such a huge difference like when you watch like the west wing which is you know a very realistic down-to-earth yeah. kind of show and the war room in that is actually you know it's it's a little bit nicer than a than just holy, a conference room holy cow we watched our president watch the navy seals shoot osama bin laden and they were sitting around a conference table you yeah. know, with a YouTube link on an iPad, for goodness sakes. I was like, how low-tech is that? You don't have a better place to watch this go down? <laughs> you know, like, I guess not. You know, <laughs> so that's what we have. Yeah, it was, it was a lot more like, grandiose. Uh, it, it was also It's also nice, the contrast of this very big, giant, cavernous, impressive, intimidating room, and the people inside of it are so... Stupid. Well, I mean, again, that's the thing is you have this huge room full of people and only Kubrick would shoot a movie where only two of them talk to each other for three yeah. fourths of it. You know, and I was like, what the? and they're just, you know, and, and I love George C. Scott. And I, don't, I think this is something he did. He's just chewing that gum just like endlessly. You know, just keeps <laughs> one more piece after another. And by the end, he's just got this wad of gum in his mouth. And I'm like, you're talking to the president. And I think you called it that earlier. Like he has zero respect for this man, like at all. 
you know, he's just there to deliver messages and whatever that we'll get another one later. And he has nothing for Muffley Merkin as president. <laughs> oh, yeah. And there's that there's that great bit where he loses touch with himself when they find out there's the one plane that still made it. And the president's asking Turgeson, is there a chance that plane could still make it? And he, and he, he literally totally goes into just like a military buff mode. He starts thinking, oh, hell yeah, they could make it. You ever see one of those planes, that, you know, the, the jet exhaust, fried chickens, the barnyard? It's something to see. Yeah. So you think he could make it? Hell yeah, he could make it. And he realizes him making it is going to mean like the end of the world. And he, it's just this the slow revelation on his face where he just goes quiet and covers his mouth. Exactly. Like, hilarious. Yeah, exactly. And what, let's talk about that plane. This is one thing Kubrick totally gets right, because I've seen the inside and like cockpits of planes and stuff like that. They are not made for comfort. <laughs> like you are, right. it, is, it is all about efficiency and weight on an airplane. All right, so anything that weighs something counts against it. It's, it's very bare bones, and I think Kubrick completely captured the idea of what it would have been like to be in one of those cockpits. I find it absolutely hilarious that he picked Slim Pickens and James Earl Jones, two very tall men, to, <laughs> to be in a service like that they would have never gotten in. Like, they wouldn't have even been allowed to try for it. They're like, nope, too damn tall. You know, <laughs> both of, but I love how you have both of these men in there. And what can you say about Slim Pickens, man? I mean, he is, he is strictly following orders, but he's, like, doing everything he can to, like, keep morale up. And he's like, yeah. okay, go through your emergency, you know, box. And I love everything in the box. It's, like, prophylactics and gum and some rubies and $100 and a gun. in gold. And there's a gun with some bullets. And, you know, here's, here's some anti-nausea medication. It's like, yeah, it's a good weekend, you know, for, <laughs> for, for a young strapping guy. Uh, but I love that he's all about the mission, you know. And th this is all played for farce like they've turned their radio to the super secret radio so that nobody can communicate with them so they don't get mixed messages from the enemy because that totally makes sense right like we get that in terms of the the process and procedure of this time of year but then they get anti-aircraft you know, flak they get you know a missile goes off by them and this is the thing that like i didn't learn until later in life i used to think like anti-aircraft guns and and rockets were supposed to like hit the target no, it's much more like a sea battle. They're really just supposed to blow up somewhere near it because all the flak right. is what does the damage, you know. And the fact that the, you know, it blows all the radio equipment out and really you know blows all the electronics out in the plane—they're basically flying it on hydraulics and blind. I really liked as a twist because they finally get you know we finally get the base taken over. We get the code. We're recalling the bombers, and uh oh, the one we've been talking to the whole time—they're not able to hear the signal because they actually took retaliatory fire from the enemy yeah it, it, it's weird i never thought of it until now is that like this character of major kong you know he, he's a very kind of over-the-top persona but the thing about him is he's, he's actually maybe the most competent military guy and like he's the guy he's a leader you want he's a great boss he's, he's the guy you want in charge but it's just like he's he's incredibly good at his job it's just he doesn't realize that he is unintentionally being you know the uh the tip of the spear of Armageddon, and uh, yeah. he doesn't realize he's he's still, like he's so dedicated. It's like I'm going to drop that bomb if it hairlips everybody on Bear Creek because he thinks he's doing the right thing because he, he again he's just following orders so well. I uh, know, and to the point that like in the end he goes back to the bomb bay and releases one of the bombs manually, basically, and then rides it like we've said as a bull to the ground. Which that was probably the iconic scene. Like I knew that scene. From because it's been used over and over and parodied in so many things, right? But there's a statement in that too, 
that like he, you know, he has that line earlier, like you said, I'm going to do this no matter what the cost is. He's riding this thing to the full eight seconds. He is going to you know get on that bull and ride it the whole way down personally. Oh yeah, it's like I said at the start of this of this series. Once Kubrick, you know, got rolling, each of his films had at least you know one shot or moment that has become iconic. This movie has a couple of those, like Strange Love getting out of his chair or fighting his own hand. But my favorite, and it, it is my favorite, any Kubrick film is Major Kong physically, is totally accidentally writing, uh, writing a hydrogen bomb to its detonation, and that 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 shot, getting you know going back to. Kubrick, and even if it's a comedy, these the, the the visuals, how you know, all in one shot, Slim Pickens writing the bomb, that it's so quiet aside from him screaming. You know, the quiet sound of the air whistling past, the visual effects shot of us getting closer to the ground, Major Kong screaming his his guts out, waving his cowboy hat like he's trying to tame a wild horse. It all this to nuclear, you know, to nuclear oblivion. It, I think it is without a doubt the best death scene I've ever seen in a movie. Kong, in those few moments, you know, is deciding if, if he's going to die, he's going to, you know, if he's going out, he's going out his way like a cowboy as the bomb heads towards its target. It, it, it's both disturbing and hilarious. And in my, in my opinion, I think that's the best shot uh, Stanley Kubrick ever did. I don't know if it's the best shot he ever did. There's some in The Shining that I'll put up against it, and we'll get there you know, sometime in 2018, mm-hmm. hopefully. But it is iconic, and it certainly is. If you had to symbolize this entire film's message in one shot, it's that. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's it completely in one shot. And it is amazing, and it's got you know it's very simple soundtrack, and I, we haven't talked about it enough too. The aerial shots in this, and the composites with the models and the background stuff, looks amazing. Excellent, it's beautiful, beautiful scenery uh, over the Urals and all that kind of stuff. Which I don't know if the, I, I think he shot like the Rocky Mountains a lot or something like that. Probably a mountains a mountain in 1964. Who cares? You know, we didn't have Wikipedia; nobody knew. So <laughs> you just you go with it. But I I like the way all of it's put together. But I'm with you. That shot symbolizes everything this movie's about. And I almost wish it was the very end because we still get some talky after it's over with. But I, I, I like the fact that Kong writing that down before we get the, the ending song, we'll meet again. I was like, well, that's, that's dark and twisted and messed up. Oh yeah. That, that, that's kind of the whole thing about this movie is like, you know, <laughs> it's like when, when I got this movie in you know, 2007 for the first time, I didn't know anything about it. All I knew about it was the, the writing, the bomb scene. I didn't know it was a comedy. So I was, I was shocked that I was laughing so much given the subject matter is that it's so funny. It's like, it, it's, it's like, it might be the most fun Kubrick movie to watch. And at the same time, it is his darkest film because the death count on the, you know, the end of the movie is, we're in, is like in the millions or hundreds of millions if you, if you broke it down. And yet it's, it's just, it's so, it's such a blast. Literally, yeah, it's all played off. It's all played off as a complete laugh and a farce, but it's also horrific if you think about what you're laughing at. And certainly, audiences did at the time. Critics did, and I mean, it's it's. I mean, this movie's what fifty three years old, fifty four years old now. At this point, we're talking about it, and it still rings true. And it's funny. You know, history is is circular, and and I, I'm one of those people that believes that things repeat themselves. The situations and the people change and the technology changes, but 
the, the scenarios just repeat over and over throughout <laughs> history. And, you know, we're back again. And hopefully we don't come to nuclear Armageddon. I mean, I think that's what none of us want. But hopefully. Yeah, exactly. But you can look at a film like this and see why people would make that comparison nowadays based on what we're looking at here. So I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to get final thoughts, recommendations and popcorn ratings. So Kurt, what are yours for Dr. Strange love or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. Dr. Strange love is one of my absolute favorite movies since I first saw it in summer of 2007. I watched it so many times over that summer just because I watched it and I felt like I hadn't had that feeling watching a movie or so dark and yet so funny. Uh, it, it's really the movie that made me want to seek out Kubrick's work and make sure I, I see it. After, like it all stems from like this. It's you know he to me he's the guy who did Doctor Strangelove. That's why I revisited 2001 at the time and then got into Pounds of Glory, Eyes Wide Shut and, and so forth. Uh, it's it, it it is my favorite comedy. Uh, may, maybe there's other movies that might make me laugh more these days, but it's my favorite film that happens to be a comedy. You know, but like having said that, it is still hilarious. Like I said. You know, Peter Sellers may well be the very best at what he did. I mean, nobody makes me laugh quite like him when when, when he's hitting that stride. Uh, it's just that uh, Doctor Strangelove is my favorite comedy. My it is my favorite film of the 1960s, and I would say right now, I would say it's my favorite uh, film by Stanley Kubrick. So, extra large popcorn all the way. All right, fantastic. I gotta say, I was genuinely surprised at how funny and topical and interesting I found this movie. It's very short. It's only 94 minutes long, which that, that surprised me too. I was like, Oh, I thought all these Kubrick movies were long. No, that starts next time. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, so we'll get into that next time. But for right now, no, this one's short and sweet and it, it's carried by fantastic performances. Peter Sellers, uh, you know, I talked about the fact that I, I loved um, George C. Scott in this. George C. Scott's really my in on it. Like, he was my favorite character in the thing. Hmm. Um, but all of them are good. Sterling Hayden's good. Slim Pickens is good. Even James Earl Jones, that small nothing role is good. Like, it's all – there's somebody you can relate to, but the story is so much fun. It's beautifully shot. Uh, to be something that, again, is kind of contained. I mean, it's in a small cockpit. It's in a room with people, but then you get these right. great aerial shots with it too. And just the decoration of all of it works. The comedy still works. This is a film that must be seen. I, I'm sad that it took me this long to see it, but I'm glad I've seen it now. And it definitely be one that I had to the collection and, and watch again. So extra large popcorn for me on Dr. Strange love, just a, a fun time. And I'm glad it's a good way to end the year on, on Kubrick. Cause if Lolita had been in in 2017, I'd have been real depressed. Kurt. I <laughs> like that was, that was, I had such a bad time reviewing that film, watching that film, not <laughs> reviewing it. That was fun enough with you, but like watching that, I was like, I don't think I can do any more of these. I just, I really don't know I, can, I can do any more Kubrick. Maybe, maybe the series should just die. I don't know. So, but uh, no, we will carry on. We're heading into 2018 now and we've got six big ones in a row and I think these are the ones that like most people are going to know Kubrick for we got 2001 a space odyssey a clockwork orange Barry Lyndon the shining full metal jacket and eyes wide shut all coming up on the 2018 uh, docket so look forward to getting into those with you and you've been uh, I mean you've kind of turned the Fabish factor into superhero central man you've got all those on on lock yeah <laughs> Yeah, Fabish Factor, we're, we're kind of up and running again, and it's just, just sheer coincidence. The, the, uh, there have been a lot of genre movies and uh, superhero movies the last little while. 
So after like we just put out the Justice League show, Thor three before that, but I think it's going to be that's about it for superheroes at least for 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 a little while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for a little bit, but they, they'll they're always more coming out in twenty eighteen. Of course, you know you got one more with us this this uh, winter here. We're going to do the Last Jedi. Star Wars is coming up for us, so oh yeah, uh, that one's there. And then uh, who knows what'll come around in twenty eighteen where we can uh, we can uh, bring you into the uh, the fold. It's always fun to to have you here on the show, and uh, certainly enjoy talking these Kubrick films with you. And I'm really really looking forward to these these back six like these are the ones i probably know the best and i you know there's the there's a lot that's been said about them and there's a lot that's been said about all of these films so i think it's gonna be fun to to add our wrinkle to it as well as we get into more on film strip of course you can find all of our stuff on our website continuousplaypodcast.com from there choose your podcast adventure if you choose the art of slaying path to redemption you're going to see the full buffy the vampire slayer retrospective and the new angel retrospective that brian and i have just launched here at the end of 2017 we're going through Season one, Angel. Check that out. If you click movies, you're gonna get all the film strip movies. You're also gonna see the Fabish Factor stuff. We put it all in the same feed now. So subscribe to that on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and you can get all of it there and get episodes as they come out. And do leave us a review on those platforms. We do this show for free. We'll always do it for free, but it's great to get feedback from folks uh, as you enjoy the films. And if you see things that we miss or that you know you, you don't necessarily agree with or that you do agree with, let us know because we enjoy interacting with you as always. Until next time, for Kurt, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.